Section 11 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Kleiser. An Expedition to Mount St. Elias, Alaska by Israel C. Russell, Part 2. Narrative of the St. Elias Expedition of 1890, Part 5. Life Above the Snow Line Early on the morning of August 2nd, all necessary preparations having been made the day previous, we started in the direction of the great snow peak to be seen at the head of the Marvine Glacier, where we hoped to find a pass leading through the mountains, which would enable us to reach the foot of Mount St. Elias or to discover a practicable way across the main range into the unknown country toward the north. All of the camp hands were with us at the start, except Stammy and White, who had been dispatched to Port Mulgrave to purchase shoes. All but Crumback and Lindsley were to return to Blossom Island, however, after leaving their loads, at a rendezvous as far from Blossom Island as could be reached in a day, and allow sufficient time to return to the base camp. Kerr and myself, with the two camp hands mentioned, were to press on to the snowfields above. We took with us a tent, blankets, rations, an oil stove, and a supply of coal oil, and felt equal to any emergency that might arise. The morning of our departure was thick and foggy, with occasional showers, and the weather grew worse instead of better as we advanced. All the mountains were soon shut out from view by the vast vapor banks that settled down from above, and we had little except the general character of the glacier to guide us. Our way at first led us up the eastern border of the Marvine Glacier, over seemingly interminable fields of angular debris, traveling on the rugged moraine, some idea of which may be obtained from Plate 17, was not only tiresome in the extreme, but ruinous to boots and shoes. On passing the mouth of the first lateral gorge, about a mile from Blossom Island, from which flows a secondary glacier, we could look up the bed of the steep ravine to the white precipices beyond, which seemed to descend out of the clouds and were scarred by avalanches. But all the higher peaks were shrouded from view. At noon we passed the mouth of a second and larger gorge, which discharges an important tributary. We then left the border of the glacier and traveled up its center, the crevices at the embouchures of the tributary stream being too numerous and too wide to be crossed without great difficulty. In the center of the Marvine Glacier, there is a dark medial moraine composed mainly of debris of gabbro and serpentine, of the same character as the medial moraine on the Hayden Glacier, already briefly mentioned. Here, too, we found broad areas covered with sand cones and glacial tables. There are also rushing streams flowing in channels of ice which finally plunge into crevices or in well-like moulins and send back a deep roar from the cavern beneath. The murmurs of running waters, heard on every hand, seem to indicate that the whole glacier is doomed to melt away in a single season. Early in the afternoon we reached the junction of the two main branches of the Marvine Glacier and chose the most westerly. We were still traveling over hard blue ice in which the blue and white vein structure characteristic of glaciers could be plainly distinguished. 
The borders of the ice streams were dark with lateral moraines, but after passing the last great tributary coming in from the northeast, we reached the upper limit of the glacier proper and came to the lower border of the neve fields, above which there is little surface debris. The glacier there flows over a rugged descent and is greatly broken by its fall. At first we endeavored to find a passage up the center of the creviced and pinnacled ice, but soon came to an impassable gulf. Turning toward the right, we traversed a ridge of ice between profound gorges and reached the base of the mountain slope bordering the glacier on the east. Our party was now divided. Christie and his companion were left searching for a convenient place to leave the cans of rations that they carried, while we, who were to explore the regions above, were endeavoring to find a way up the icefall. A shout from our companions below called our attention to the fact that they were unable to reach the border of the glacier, where they had been directed to leave their packs, and that they had left them on the open ice. They waved us goodbye and started back towards Blossom Island, leaving our little band of four to make the advance. Descending into a deep black gorge at the border of the ice, formed by its melting back from the bordering cliffs, we clambered upward beneath overhanging ice walls, from which stones and fragments of ice were occasionally dropping, and finally reached a great snowbank on the border of the glacier. As the storm still continued, and was ever increasing in force, we concluded to find a camping ground soon as possible and make ourselves comfortable as the circumstances would permit. First Camp in the Snow We had now reached the lower limit of perpetual snow. There were no more moraines on the surface of the glacier and no bare rock surfaces large enough to hold a tent. The entire region was snow-mantled as far as the eye could see except where pinnacles and cliffs too steep and rugged for the snow to accumulate rose above the general surface. A little to one side of the mouth of a steep lateral gorge, we found a spot in which a mass of partly disintegrated shale had fallen down from the cliff. We scraped the fragments aside, smoothed snow beneath, and built a wall of rock along the lower margin. The space above was filled in with fragments of shale, so as to form a shelf on which to pitch our tent. Soon our blankets were spread and our waterproof coats for a substratum, and supper was prepared over the oil stove. Darkness settled down over the mountains, and the storm increased as the night came on. What is unusual in Alaska, the rain fell in torrents, as in the tropics. Our little tent of light cotton cloth afforded great protection, but the raindrops beat on it with such force that the spray was driving through and made a fine rain within. Weary with many hours of hard traveling over moraines and across creviced ice, and in an atmosphere saturated with moisture, we rolled ourselves in our blankets, determined to rest in spite of the storm that raged about. As the rain became heavier, the avalanches, already alarmingly numerous, became more and more frequent. A crash like thunder, followed by the clatter of falling stones, told that many tons of ice and rocks on the mountains to the westward had slid down upon the borders of the glacier. Another roar near at hand, caused by an avalanche on our side of the glacier, was followed by another, 
another and still another out in the darkness. No one could tell where. The wilder the storm, the louder and more frequent became the thunder of the avalanches. It seemed as if pandemonium reigned on the mountains. One might fancy that the evil spirits of the hills had prepared for us a reception of their own liking, but decidedly not to the taste of their visitors. Soon there was a clatter and whiz of stones at our door. Looking out, I saw rocks as large as one's head bounding past within a few feet of our tent. The stones on the mountainsides above had been loosened by the rain, and it was evident that our perch was no longer tenable. Before we could remove our frail shelter to a place of greater safety, a falling rock struck the alpenstock to which the ridge rope of our tent was fastened and carried it away. Our tent went by the board, as a sailor would say, and we were left exposed to the pouring rain. Before we could gather up our blankets, they were not only soaked, but a bushel or more of mud and stones from the bank above, previously held back by the tent, flowed in upon them. Rolling up our blankets and caching the rations, instruments, etc., under a rubber cloth held down by rocks, we hastily dragged our tent cloth down to the border of the glacier, at the extremity of a tapering ridge, along which it seemed impossible for stones from above to travel. We there pitched our tent on the hard snow, without the luxury of even a handful of shale beneath our blankets. Wet and cold, we sought to wear the night away as best we could, sleep being impossible. Crumback, who had been especially energetic in removing the tent, regardless of his own exposure, was wet and became cold and silent. The oil stove and a few rations were brought from the cache at the abandoned camp, and soon a dish of coffee was steaming and filling the tent with its delicious odor. Our shelter became comfortably warm, and the hot coffee, acting as a stimulant, restored our sluggish circulation. We passed an uncomfortable night and watched anxiously for the dawn. Torn morning, a cold wind swept down the glacier, and the rain ceased. With the dawn there came indications that the storm had passed, although we were still enveloped in dense clouds and could not decide whether or not a favorable change in the weather had occurred. We were still cold and wet, and the desire to return to Blossom Island, where all was sunshine in summer, was great. Uncertain as to what would be the wisest course, we packed our blankets and started slowly down the mountain, looking anxiously for signs that the storm had really passed. An hour after sunrise, a rift in the mist above us revealed the wonderful blue of the heavens and allowed a flood of sunlight to pour down upon the white fields beneath. Never was the August sun more welcome. The mists vanished before its magic touch, leaving here and there fleecy vapor wreaths festooned along the mountainside. As the clouds disappeared, peak after peak came into view, and snow domes and glaciers, never seen before, one by one revealed themselves to our astonished eyes. When the curtain was lifted, we found ourselves in a new world, more wild and rugged than any we had yet beheld. There was not a tree in sight, and nothing to suggest green fields or flowery hillsides, except on a few of the lower mountain spurs where brilliant alpine blossoms added a touch of color to the pale landscape. All else was stern, silent, motionless winter. 
the glacier clear and white without a rock on its broken surface looked from a distance like a vast snow-covered meadow we are about a mile above the lower limit of the snowfields where the blue ice of the glacier comes out from beneath the neve the blue ice was deeply buried and could only be seen in the deepest crevices across the glacier rose the angular cliffs and tapering spires of the hitchcock range every ravine and gulch in its rugged sides was occupied by glaciers many of which were so broken and creviced that they looked like frozen cataracts cheered by the bright skies and sun-warmed air we pushed on up the glacier taking the center of the stream in order to avoid the crevices which were most numerous along its borders two or three miles above our first camp we found a place where a thin layer of broken shale covered the snow at a sufficient distance from the steep slopes above to be out of reach of avalanches we there established our second camp after leaving blossom island dried our blankets and spent the remainder of the day basking in the sunlight and gathering energy for coming emergencies we found the neve of the marvine glacier differing greatly from the lower or icy portions traversed instead of ice with blue and white bands as is common lower down the entire surface as far down in the crevices as the eye could distinguish was composed of compact snow or snow changed to icy particles resembling hail and having in reality but few of the properties of ordinary snow it might properly be called neve ice usually the thickness of the layers varied from ten to fifteen feet separating them were dark lines formed by dust blown over the surface of the glacier and buried by subsequent snowstorms or by thin blue lines formed by the edge of sheets of ice and showing that the snow surface had been melted during bright sunny days and frozen again at night the horizontal stratification so plainly marked in all the crevices in the neve was almost entirely wanting or at least was not conspicuous in the lower portion of the glacier where instead we found those narrow blue and white bands already mentioned the origin of which had been so well described and explained by tyndall the center of the marvine glacier as in most similar ice streams is higher and less broken by crevices than its borders the crevices at the side tend upstream as is the case with marginal crevices generally in the present instances the courses of these rents could be plainly distinguished on each border of the glaciers when looking down upon it from neighboring slopes the crevices occur at quite regular intervals of approximately fifty feet and diverge from the bank at angles of about forty degrees in the banks of snow bordering the glacier similar crevices diverge from the margin of the flowing glacier and trend down along its banks the marginal crevices and the crevices in the bordering snow fields to which no special name had been given fall nearly in line but between the two there is a series of irregular cracks and broken snow sharply defining the border of the moving neve the origin of the marginal crevices trending upstream was explained during the study of the glaciers of switzerland the following diagram and explanation illustrating their development are copied from tyndall Quote, let a c be one side of the glacier 
and BD the other, and let the direction of motion be that indicated by the arrow. Let ST be a transverse slice of the glacier taken straight across it, say today. A few days or weeks hence, the slice will have been carried down, and because the center moves more quickly than the sides, it will not remain straight, but will bend into the form S'T'. Supposing Ti to be a small square of the original slice near the side of the glacier, in the new position the square will be distorted to the lozenge-shaped figure T'I'. Fix your attention upon the diagonal Ti of the square. In the lower position this diagonal, if the eyes could stretch, would be lengthened to T'I'. But the eyes does not stretch, it breaks and we have a crevasse formed at right angles to T'I'. The mere inspection of the diagram will assure you that the crevasse will point obliquely upward. Unquote. The explanation given above applies especially to the lower or icy portion of a glacier. Above the snow line other facts appear. When a glacier flows through fields of snow on a level with its surface, crevices are formed in the adjacent banks. These trend downstream for the same reason that the crevices in the glacier proper trend upstream, that is, the friction of the moving stream against its banks tends to carry them along, while the portions at a distance are stationary. Fissures are thus opened which trend in the direction in which the glacier moves. The angle made by these crevices with the axis of the glacier is about the same as those of the marginal crevices, but in an opposite direction. They are widest near the margin of the glacier and taper to a sharp end towards the stationary snowbanks above. The crevices in the two series thus fall nearly in line, but are separated by a narrow band of irregularly broken snow, marking the actual border of the glacier. After leaving Blossom Island, the party was divided and we began a new series of numbers for our camp above the snow line, although in this narrative and on the accompanying map a single series of numbers for all the camps will be used. While in the field, the camps in the snow were usually termed, facetiously, sardine camps, in allusion to the uncomfortable manner in which we were packed in our tents at night. Across Pinnacle Pass The morning after reaching Camp 12, dawned gloriously bright. The night had been cold, and a heavy frost had silenced every rill from the snow slopes above. The clear, bracing air gave us renewed energy and a firmer desire to press on. Mr. Kerr and myself made an excursion ahead, while Lindsay and Crumback brought up a load of supplies from the cache left on the glacier below Camp 11. On gaining the center of the Marvine Glacier, we had a magnificent view down the broad ice stream, bordered on either hand by towering snow-laden precipices, and changing, as the eye followed the downward slope, from pure white to brown and black in the distance. Far below we could barely discern the wooded summit of Blossom Island, beyond which stretched the seemingly limitless ice fields of the Malaspina Glacier. All above us the white slope reflected the sunlight with painful brilliancy, 
while the black moraines and forests below and the mists over the distant ocean made it seem as if one was looking down into a lower and darker world as we advanced toward the head of the glacier we found as on several subsequent occasions that the nearer we approached the sources of an ice stream the easier our progress became following up the center of the glacier we learned that it curved toward the east and after an hour or two of weary tramping we reached the great amphitheater in which it has its source all about us were rugged mountain slopes heavily loaded with snow and forming clear white cliffs from which avalanches had descended to the westward the wall of the amphitheater was broken and it was apparent that we could cross its rim in that direction pressing onward up the gently ascending slope we came at length to a gap in the mountains bordered on the north by a towering cliff fully a thousand feet high and were rejoiced to find that the snow surface on the opposite side of the divide inclined westward with a grade as gentle as the one we had ascended looking far down the western snow slope we could see where it joined a large glacier flowing southwest past the end of the great cliffs which extended westward from the divide the glacier we saw in the valley below is designated on our map as the seward glacier in honor of william h seward the former secretary of state who negotiated the purchase of alaska for the united states the pass we named pinnacle pass on account of the many towering pinnacles overshadowing it its elevation is about four thousand feet and at the summit it has a breadth of only two or three hundred feet the snow on the divide is greatly creviced but a convenient snow bridge enabled us to cross without difficulty the crevices increased in breadth with the advance of the season and on returning from our mountain trip in september we had to climb up on the bordering cliff in order to pass the main crevice at the summit some idea of the crevices of this region may be obtained from the following figure drawn from a photograph taken on the western side of the pinnacle pass not far from the summit the cliff on the north of pinnacle pass is really a huge fault scarp of recent date intersecting stratified shale limestone and conglomerate with a few thin coal seams the strata dip toward the north at a high angle and present their broken edges in the great cliff rising above the pass the cliffs extend westward from the pass and retain a nearly horizontal crest line but increase in height and grandeur owing to the downward grade of the glacier along their base a mile to the westward their elevation is fully two thousand feet the cliffs throughout are almost everywhere bare of snow and too steep and rugged to be scaled they form a strongly drawn borderline in the geology of the region and furnish the key to the structure and geological character of an extended area all the rocks to the southward are sandstone and shale belonging to a well-defined series and differ materially from the rocks in the fault scarp i have called the rocks toward the south the yucatat system and those exposed in the faces of the fault scarp the pinnacle system directly north of pinnacle pass and at the base of mount owen the rocks of the yucatat system are exposed and from their positions and association it is evident that they are younger than the pinnacle system and belong above it if these conclusions are sustained by future investigation 
they will carry with them certain deductions which are among the most rewarding in geological history on the crest of the pinnacle pass cliffs i afterwards found strata containing fossil shells and leaves belonging to species still living these records of animal and plant life show that not only were the rocks of the pinnacle system deposited since living species of mollusks and plants came into existence but that the yucatat system is still more recent more than this the upheaval of the mountains the formation of numerous fault scarps and the origin of the glaciers have all occurred since pliocene times the discovery of pinnacle pass left no question as to the route to be traversed in order to reach the mountains to the westward we returned to camp twelve and the following day with crumbuck and lindsay to assist us advanced our camp across pinnacle pass and far down the western snow slope the day we crossed the pass was bright and clear in the morning but clouds gathered around all the higher peaks about midday vanishing again at nightfall as it was desirable to occupy for topographical and other purposes a station on the top of the cliffs overlooking pinnacle pass we made an effort to reach the crest of the ridge by climbing up the steep scarp just at the divide where the cliffs are lowest while crumbuck returned to camp twelve for an additional load and lindsley went ahead to discover a new camping place Kerr and myself, taking the necessary instruments, began the ascent, but we found it exceedingly difficult. The outcrops of shale in the lower portion of the cliff furnished but poor foothold, and crumbled and broke away at every step. Once my companion, losing his support, slid slowly down the slope in spite of vigorous efforts to hold on, and a rapid descent in the yawning chasm below seemed inevitable when coming to a slightly rougher surface he was able to control his movements and to regain what had been lost climbing on we came to the base of a vertical wall of shale several hundred feet high and made a detour to the left where a cascade plunged down a narrow channel we ascended the bed of the stream which was sometimes so steep that the spray dashed over us and reached the base of an overhanging cliff of conglomerate composed of well-worn pebbles above this rose a cliff of snow fifty feet or more in height which threatened to crash down in avalanches at any moment one small avalanche did occur during the ascent and scattered its spray in our faces had a heavy avalanche formed our positions would have been exceedingly dangerous but by taking advantage of every overhanging ledge and watching for the least sign of movement in the snow above we reached without accident a sheltered perch underneath an overhanging cliff near the base of the snow we then discovered that clouds were forming on all the high mountains and shreds of vapor blown over the crest of the cliff above told us that further efforts would be useless seeking a perch protected from avalanches by an overhanging cliff we had a splendid view far out over the sloping snow plain toward the west and of the mountains bordering pinnacle pass on the south my notes written in this commanding station read as follows looking down from my perch i can plainly distinguish the undulations and crevices in the broad snowfield stretching westward from pinnacle pass each inequality in the rock beneath a glacier 
is reproduced in flowing and subdued outlines in the white surface above the positions of bosses and cliffs in the rock beneath are indicated by rounding domes and steep descents in the snow surface about the lower sides of these inequalities there are in some cases concentric blue lines and in others radiating fissures marking where the snow has broken in making the descent the side light shining from the eastward down the long westerly slope reveals by its delicate shading the presence of broad terrace-like traverse steps into which the stream is divided were the snow removed and the rock beneath exposed we should find broad terraces separated by scarps sweeping across the bed of the glacier from side to side similar terraces occurred in glaciated canyons in the rocky mountains and the sierra nevada but their origin had never been explained the glacier is here at work sculpting similar forms but still it is impossible to understand how the process is initiated right in front of us and only about a mile or two away rise the cliffs spires and pinnacles of the hitchcock range every ravine and amphitheater in the great mountain mass is deeply filled with snow and the sharp angular crests look as if they had been thrust up through the general covering of white the northern end of the ravine is clearly defined by the east and west fault to which pinnacle pass owes its origin the trend of the mighty cliffs on the southern face on which we found a perch is at right angles to the longer axis on the hitchcock range and marks its northern terminus both topographically and geologically there is not even a suggestion of vegetation in sight the eye fails to detect a single dash of green or the glow of a single alpine flower anywhere on the rugged slopes a small avalanche from the snow cliffs above cascading over the cliff which shelters me and only a few yards away tells why the precipices are so bare and desolate they have been swept clean by avalanches far down the western snow slope i can distinguish crevices and dirt bands in the seward glacier which flows southward past the range on which we sit the marginal crevices along the border of the glacier can clearly be distinguished as usual they trend upstream and meeting medial crevices break the surface of the glacier into thousands of pinnacles and tables along the center of the stream there are v-shaped dirt bands separated by crevices which point downstream and give the appearance of a rapid flow to the central portion of the glacier from this distance its center has the appearance of a watered ribbon a little toward the south of where the medial crevices are most numerous and at a locality where two opposite mountain spurs force the ice stream through the comparatively narrow gorge there is evidently an ice fall as the whole glacier from side to side disappears from view the appearance of niagara where seen from the banks of the river above the horseshoe falls is suggested beyond this silent cataract the eye ranges far out over the broad level surface of the malaspina glacier and traces the dark morainal ribbons streaming away for miles from the mountain spurs along which they originate from the extreme southern cape of the samovar hills there is a highly compound moraine belt stretching away toward the south and then dividing and curving both east and west 
the central band of debris must be a mile broad. Along its eastern margin I can count five lesser bands separated by narrow intervals of ice, and on the farther side similar secondary bands are suggested, but the height of the central range almost completely conceals them from view. In the distant tattered ends, however, their various divisions can be clearly traced. Great swirls in the ice are there, indicated by concentric circles of debris on its surface. Still further westward, there are hills rising to the height of impressive mountains in which northward dipping rocks, apparently of sandstone and shale, similar to those forming the Hitchcock Range, are plainly distinguishable. All the northern slopes of these hills are deeply buried beneath a universal coating of snow, evidently hundreds of feet thick, which is molded upon them so as to reveal every swelling dome and ravine in their rugged sides. Farther westward still, beyond a dark headland apparently washed by the sea, there are other broad ice fields of the same general character as the Malaspina Glacier, which stretch away for miles and miles and blend in the dim distance with the haze of the horizon. Just west of the Seward Glacier, and in part forming its western shore, there are dark, rocky crests projecting through the universal ice mantle, suggesting the lost mountains of Utah and Nevada, which have become deeply buried by the dusts of the desert. The character of the sharp crests beyond the Seward Glacier indicate they are upturned edges of fault blocks, similar to the one on which we are seated. Interesting geological records are there waiting an interpreter. The vastness of the mountains and the snowfields to be seen at a single glance from this point of view can scarcely be realized. There are no familiar objects in sight with which to make eye measurements. The picture is on so grand a scale that it defies imagination's grasp. Searching the snow sheet below with a field glass, I discover a minute spot on the white surface. Its movement, slow but unmistakable, assures me that it's Lindsley returning from the site chosen for our camp tonight. Although apparently near at hand, he forms but an inconspicuous speck on the vast snowfield. Having learned all that I could of the geology of the cliff and the gathering clouds rendering it unnecessary to climb the summits above, we descended with even more difficulty than we had encountered on our way up and met Lindsley as he reached the pass. Resuming our packs, we started on, knowing that Crumbeck would follow our trail and after two hours hard tramping over a snow surface rendered somewhat soft by the heat of the day, but fortunately little creviced, we reached the place chosen for our camp. Crumbeck soon joined us, and we pitched our tent for the night. The place chosen was on a little island of debris, the furthest out we could discover from the base of the great cliff on the north. We judged that we should there be safe from avalanches, although the screech and hiss of stones falling from the cliff were heard many times during the night. Lindsley and Crumbach, on visiting the site of our camp two days later, found that a tremendous avalanche of snow and rocks had in the meantime fallen from the cliffs and plowed its way out upon the glacier to within fifteen or twenty feet of where we had passed the night. They remarked that if the avalanche had occurred while we were in camp, our tent would not have been reached but we should probably have been scared to death by the roar.
First Full View of Mount St. Elias Leaving Crumbach and Lindsay to make our camp as comfortable as possible, Kerr and I pressed on with the object of seeing all we could of the country ahead before the afternoon sunlight faded into twilight. Mount St. Elias had been shut out from view, either by clouds or by intervening mountains, for several days, but it was evident that on approaching the end of the Pinnacle Pass fault scarp, we should behold it again and comparatively near at hand. Continuing down the even snow slope, in which there were but few crevices, the view became broader and broader as we advanced, and at length the great pyramid forming the culminating summit of all the region burst into full view. What a glorious sight! The great mountain seemed higher and grander and more regularly proportioned than any peak I had ever beheld before. The white plain formed by the Seward Glacier gave an even foreground, broken by crevices which, lessening in perspective, gave distance to the foothills forming the western margin of the glacier. Far above the angular crest of the Samovar Hills, in the middle distance, towered St. Elias, sharp and clear against the evening sky. Midway up the final slope, a thin, horizontal bar of gray clouds was delicately penciled. Through the meshes of the fairy scarf shone the yellow sunset sky. The strong outlines of the rugged mountain, which had withstood centuries of storms and earthquakes, were softened and glorified by the breath of the summer winds, chilled as they kissed its crystal slopes. Could I give to the reader a tithe of the impression that such a view suggests, they would declare that painters had never shown them mountains but only hills. So majestic was St. Elias, with the halo of the sunset above his brow, that other magnificent peaks, now seen for the first time, are more fully revealed than ever before, although worthy the respect and homage of the most experienced mountain climber, scarcely received a second glance. Returning to camp, we passed the night, and the following day, August 6th, advanced our camp to the eastern border of the Seward Glacier, at the extreme western end of the upturned crest forming the northern wall of Pinnacle Pass. The west end of the Pinnacle Pass cliff is turned abruptly northward, and the rocks dip eastward at a high angle, showing, together with other conditions, that the edge of the ridge is determined by a cross-fault running northeast and southwest. West of the Seward Glacier, there is a continuation of the Pinnacle Pass cliff, but is greatly out of line. The position of the Seward Glacier, in this portion of its course, was determined by the fault which broke the alignment of the main displacement. Many facts of similar nature show that the glaciers of the St. Elias region have had their courses determined, to a large extent, by the faults which have given the region its characteristic structure. The ice drainage is consequent to the structure of the underlying rocks. The glaciers not only did not originate the channels in which they flow, but had failed to greatly modify them. Camp 14 was on a sharp crest of limestone, conglomerate, and shale belonging to the pinnacle system, which was not over ten feet broad where our tent was pitched. East of our tent, there was a broad, upward-sloping snow plain, banked against the precipitous base of a hill about a thousand feet high. At the edge of the snow, within three feet of our tent, there was a pond of clear water, 
seemingly placed there for our special use. The western edge of our tent was at the margin of a cliff about a hundred feet high overlooking the Seward Glacier. We held this camp for several days and reoccupied it on our return from St. Elias. End of section 11. Recording by Steve Kleiser.